right, thank you, Michelle, and good evening, good afternoon, Hallows Church. It's good to see you. My name is Jeff, and I serve as one of the pastors here uh, with our church up at the North Expression primarily, but it's always my privilege and my pleasure to be back here with you in this way as we open our Bibles uh, and continue this journey through the book of Acts. And this passage today that we'll be exploring, um, well, you, you just heard the passage a moment ago, and I don't know how it landed with you, but it's a difficult one. It's a troubling passage, to say the least, this Married couple named Ananias and Sapphira, they're struck down, they're struck dead in an act of divine judgment among their church family, basically for lying about money. And so there it is, that's the gist of it, and here we are, what do we do with that? It seems I have my work cut out for me today, thank you very much, Pastor Andrew. Actually, as many of you know, Pastor Andrew did have a, a lot of things on his plate this week. He was preparing for last night's uh, extended time of teaching in what we call the Gospel Clarity Study Series, which I heard went quite well. But the truth is, it is my privilege to be here with you in this way, even on this day and even with this passage, because, because if you've been with us here at the Hallows Church for any length of time, I hope one thing you notice about us is that we don't pick and choose which passages of the Bible that we uh, teach about and which ones we don't. We journey through entire books of the Bible together, and as we do, we teach on each and every passage as, as they come at us, even those that may make us uncomfortable, even those that may seem somewhat unsettling for us, even those that to some may seem uh, unbecoming of God. And as we journey through books of the Bible together as a church in this way, we do expect ahead of time, or I, I do expect, I hope you do too, we, we expect ahead of time, we assume in advance that every passage has, has something important to, to teach us. We believe the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where he says that, he says all scripture, not some scripture, but all scripture, he says, is inspired by God and is profitable it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the person of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so not some scripture, but all scripture is profitable for us. We believe that deeply. And so as we consider today this story of Ananias and Sapphira, let us be asking ourselves along the way, how might this story profit us? How might God intend to use this story today to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us even when it comes to our understanding of him or when it comes to our understanding of ourselves? The truth is no amount of commentary will ever take the edge off of this passage but as we'll see, that may be the very point. And interestingly, this story of Ananias and Sapphira, it seems, it seems somewhat out of place, doesn't it? Leading up to this point, God has been doing remarkable things. We've seen uh, the early church explode into existence at Pentecost. We've seen lives being changed by the thousands. We've seen signs and wonders and miracles being performed. And we've also been shown by the author Luke a very, a very compelling picture of what the early church looked like and what the early church acted like as they were filled with the Holy Spirit, as they were uh, trusting in Jesus, and as they were committed to, to one another. 
Luke has shown us that they were a, a devoted people. They were devoted to the apostles' teachings. They were a grateful people. They were a joyful and generous people. They were a people filled with awe and amazement over what God had done for them and what he was doing in them and, and through them and around them too. And as we open our Bibles to today's passage at the end of chapter 4 of the book of Acts, Luke is going to continue painting this very beautiful picture of a very beautiful people whose hearts are in every way being revolutionized by the gospel. But as we'll also see, this very beautiful picture of a very beautiful people is about to be very abruptly interrupted by a threat, by a threat that was lurking within their church and a threat that is lurking within our church too. Three things I'd like to draw out of this passage today about Ananias and Sapphira. First, what was their sin? Second, why was it dealt with so severely by God? And what effect did this have on the church and on its mission and its ministry? In verses 32 to 35, Luke gives us really another snapshot of these early Christians. And it's, it's all good. It's all very good. Take a look with me. In verse 32... We see that the entire group who believed, who believed in Jesus, they were of one heart and one mind. No one claimed any of his possessions as his own. Instead, it says they held everything in common. Verse 33, the gospel was being proclaimed with power and great grace was on all of them. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. Why? Because these people were selling their possessions and they were distributing the proceeds to anyone and everyone who had need. And so something very interesting that I think we see in these opening verses are two very dynamic effects of the gospel that were happening in the hearts of these people and that should be happening when the gospel is at work in your heart and in my heart. Two effects. First, you see that the hearts of these people were being, they were being loosened in relationship to things. Second, you see that the hearts of these people were being tightened in relationship to people. And you can't miss it in this passage, can you? These people were, they were loving and caring more and more about people, and they were loving and caring less and less about things. The gospel was increasing their love for people and it was decreasing their love for things because that's what it does. That's what it should be doing. And as a result, these people came to view their resources and their wealth and their property and their possessions no longer as a means of loving and serving themselves, but rather as a means of loving and serving others who were in need. It's a powerful picture of God's grace and God's gospel giving these people a certain inner freedom from things while simultaneously giving them an inner freedom for love and for people. And then Luke, he gives us a very specific illustration of what he's talking about in the final two verses of chapter 4 as he tells us briefly about this man named Barnabas. Verse 36, take a look. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth... The one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
And so the gospel has given these people a freedom from things and a freedom for people. And we see Barnabas really uh, living this out before the whole church. And this is really the very high note that chapter 4 ends on with this man named Barnabas. Unfortunately, this very high note is about to change. All this is about to change as we turn the page into chapter 5 because because the very first word of the very next verse, verse 1 of chapter 5 of the book of Acts, begins with the word but. Luke, he just got done saying, look at all these beautiful people. Look at the unity. Look at the generosity. Look at all the life change. Look at Barnabas, but, he says in the very next breath, in the very next verse. Verse 1 of chapter 5, read it with me. But, he says, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, Luke tells us in verse 2, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so that, that sounds very familiar, right? Just like Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira also sold a piece of property and brought proceeds uh, to the apostles. Another wonderful act of sacrificial generosity. Or was it? The difference was Barnabas brought all of the proceeds from the sale and gave it to the apostles, whereas Ananias kept back. He, he kept back part of the proceeds and brought only a portion of it to them. Now, at first glance, that doesn't seem so bad, does it? They still, they still gave something after all. Maybe they had a good reason to hold on to some of the proceeds, Maybe they had some legitimate needs of their own. We are not told. But one thing we are told, one thing that is clear as we consider this passage as a whole, is that Ananias and Sapphira, they were not entirely forthcoming. They were misleading the church in some way. Somehow they were leading the church to believe that they would be giving all of the proceeds from the sale of their property to the church, when in reality, in the end, that's not actually what they did. Perhaps they intended to at first, I'm not sure. We're not given those details. But what we are told is that, is that he lied and she lied. Together they lied. That much is clear from verses 3 and 4. That much is clear uh, later too when Peter gives Sapphira a chance to confess, but she maintains the lie. But Why? If we're to make sense of this passage, I think we need to be asking ourselves the question, why? Why did Ananias and Sapphira misrepresent what it was that they were giving when they, they did not need to? Peter says in verse 4, you didn't need to do this. Wasn't, wasn't your property yours while you possessed it, he said? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Peter is saying there are no church rules here that say you have to sell your property or that it's uh, not yours anymore, that you have to give all the proceeds to the church. Giving a portion would have been perfectly fine. That's what Peter uh, seems to be saying. But what apparently was not fine was the two of them representing that they were giving it all when in fact they were not. And so what's going on here? What is going on with Ananias and Sapphira? Why did they do this and, and what was their sin well, they lied. The passage says that quite clearly. Their sin indeed was falsehood. 
But there was something more serious, I think, something more sinister going on um, behind the lie and beneath the lie, in every way fueling and motivating the lie. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted, uh, <clears throat> what they wanted was for, really for people to see them a certain way and to think of them a certain way. They wanted people to believe something about them that was not entirely true. What they really wanted was for the people to see them the way the people saw Barnabas. They wanted to be respected and loved and admired like Barnabas was. And so they told everyone they were giving all the proceeds just like Barnabas did when, in fact, they kept back some for themselves. Ananias and Sapphira, they were presenting themselves as something that they were not so that others would view them a certain way. It's called hypocrisy, right? And the Bible rails against hypocrisy. Jesus rails against it too, again and again. The same Jesus who was always moving toward those that society viewed as the, the most vile of sinners. The same Jesus who spent time with them, who ate with them, who loved them. This same Jesus, he got angry on a number of occasions. And most of the time when you'd see Jesus getting angry, he was getting angry about the sin of hypocrisy, religious hypocrisy in particular. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus has a lot to say. He, he speaks for an entire chapter there, railing hard against the uh, religious leaders of the day for their hypocrisy. He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, looking clean on the outside but rotting on the inside. He said the only reason they did the things they did was so that they could be seen and admired by others. And I think one of the reasons God hates the particular sin of hypocrisy is that it cries out again and again, look at me, rather than what followers of Jesus should be crying out again and again, and that is look at him. And Ananias and Sapphira, if you consider their actions carefully here, they were indeed crying out in a sense, look at me, weren't they? Ultimately, they cared more about what people thought about them than what God thought about them. They didn't need to give anything at all, in fact, and they didn't need to lie about it either, but they did anyways so that they might appear to others to be something that they were not. And when you hear the word hypocrisy or hypocrite, various things may come to your mind. Some, some might think about a politician caught in a scandal or maybe a religious leader who has stumbled and fallen or perhaps your coworker who who walks one way, but who talks one way, rather, but walks another. But I'll bet one thing that doesn't come to mind when you hear the word hypocrite is, is the theater. But the word hypocrite ultimately came into the English language from the Greek word hypocrites, which, which meant quite literally an actor, an actor on a stage in a theater. And those actors on those stages in those Greek theaters, they wore these very elaborate masks. They would hold up these big masks on, on wooden sticks in front of their faces, and they would present their character to the audience from behind those masks. That's where the word hypocrite comes from. And so hypocrites, in a sense, are nothing more than actors holding up masks, putting up false appearances, 
presenting to their audience a character who is entirely fictional. And at some level, that's what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. That was their sin. That was the reason they lied. They wanted to be seen like Barnabas was seen, and so they put on this mask. And in so doing, what they were revealing was that they cared more about what people thought about them than what God thought about them. And you heard what happened. Peter Peter was not pleased. God was not pleased. Peter took Ananias to task. He called Ananias out. He said, Ananias, Satan is using you. He says, you've lied to God. And then in verse 5, look at verse 5. We see that when Ananias heard these words, he, he dropped dead. And then we're told they took him and they buried him. Then in verse 7, a few hours later, Sapphira wanders up, not knowing what had just happened. Peter gives her a chance to confess in verse 8, but she doesn't. She, she maintains the lie. And Peter calls her out too in verse 9. He says, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, he says, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out too. And instantly she dropped dead at his feet, and they buried her too beside her husband, it says in verse 10. And so this is God bringing very swift and very severe judgment against this very serious sin that was surfacing in the early church. It's a very shocking turn of events. But let's be honest about something. Let's talk straight for a moment. Let me ask you a question. How many of us in this room know something about being one thing on the outside while being another on the inside? Do you ever allow others to think more highly of you than perhaps you know you deserve? Or to believe something about you that may not be entirely true? And how many of us not only allow others to see us in these ways, but we encourage it even, whether we realize it or not? Think about how you carry yourself, how you present yourself to a watching world in your various areas of life, on your job, in your parenting, in your social circles, and, and most definitely think about social media. What masks are you putting on as you go about life so that others might see you a certain way? We all do it, don't we? Even here in church, we sit quietly, we listen to the word of God, we sing songs, but what's really going on behind the mask? What does God see? We not only know how to do these things, we do them far more than we realize. And God help us as we tolerate this sort of thing in ourselves, even while standing in judgment of those around us. But if this is the case, if we are all guilty of this at some level, why then did God exercise judgment in the, in the way that he did in this instance with Ananias and Sapphira? Why was God's judgment so swift? Why so severe in this situation? I think there are perhaps many answers to that question, but I will try to touch, touch on a few. First of all, one thing that is clear is that in doing this, God was not establishing a pattern. Rather, he was making a point. And that's a very good thing for us, because how many of us in this room are 
grateful that God is not ordinarily in the business these days of striking down hypocrites. And because he doesn't ordinarily do this, it's actually quite easy for us to to read a passage like this and to think it sounds extreme and, and unfair. Does the punishment really fit the crime? But is that even the right question to ask? Maybe we shouldn't be asking the question, why did God strike them down? Maybe we should be asking the question, why am I still standing? Because we all do this, don't we, (laughs) all the time? It's so easy for us to presume upon God's grace and to take it for granted, all the while losing sight of his hatred for sin and his prerogative at any time in any place to, to execute judgment against it. Another thing I think that can help us to make sense of this particular incident with Ananias and Sapphira is to look at the the context in which this happened and also to consider any parallels that we can find in the Bible. And as we think about context, as we think about this story we've been uh, taking in so far in the book of Acts, the story is very much still at an early stage, right? This This is the infancy of the early church. It very much represents a new beginning for God's people, a fresh and bright new chapter in the story of God. That's the context in which we find ourselves in uh, the book of Acts. And can you think of any other new starts in the Bible, any other new beginnings? What about the Garden of Eden? That was a new beginning, the beginning of history, the beginning of the human race. And do you remember what happened there? Very interestingly, a man and his wife conspire together. They agree together to deceive and disobey God. They take something that wasn't theirs to take. They take something that belonged to God, and and then they lied about it, and they tried to hide from God in the trees of the garden. But God had already said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so they were severely punished. Think about another new beginning in the Bible, in the book of Joshua, when God's people are finally stepping into the promised land. God God had brought his people out of Egypt. He had brought them through the wilderness. He had brought them across the Jordan River, and they were ready to conquer the promised land and step into this new beginning. But what happens? God says, conquer these people, but don't take anything of theirs for yourself, he said. But a man named Achan conspires to keep for himself and for his family what was not theirs to keep, something God had said not to touch. And yet they steal it and they hide it in the floor of their tent. And Achan and his family were put to death in a pretty severe fashion. In each case, we have people conspiring together to deceive and to keep from God something for themselves that was not rightly theirs to keep, and thereby spoiling the new start, tainting the fresh new beginning that God had been working among his people. C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, says God's attitude to evil is analogous to that of a surgeon to cancer. The destructive tissue has to be removed. God's judgment is love at work, he says, destroying that which is destroying us. Sometimes the divine surgery is radical as it is in these stories, but more typically, it is postponed. 
But what these narratives have in common is that an act of deceit has interrupted the victorious progress of the people of God and the purposes of God at an early stage, at an early and critical juncture. And in each case, we see God acting swiftly to eradicate the cancer that is threatening that progress. Adam, Achan, Ananias, at the beginning of each fresh start, God was making with his people the same thing happened. Surely these things are written for our instruction. In each of these new beginnings, this is God's very direct and very dramatic way of making a powerful point and getting the attention of his people and sending a warning to them, saying, don't be naive, don't don't take me lightly, don't presume upon my grace. Because in each instance, that seemed to be exactly what they were doing. In the story of Ananias and Sapphira, there was much at stake for the early church. The integrity of the early church was at stake. The future of the early church was at stake. And I think God used this occasion and he used this dramatic act of judgment in order to get everybody's attention, including Satan's. After all, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18? He said, the gates of Hades are going to try to prevail against me and my church they will try to overpower it but Jesus said it's not going to work he said I will build my church and as Satan tried to slither onto the scene of this new beginning and stir up trouble once again Jesus put a very quick stop to it he was putting Satan in his place in a sense and putting him on notice too I think by by shutting down his scheming that he was up to in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira But God was most certainly using this occasion as well to get the attention of his own people and to warn his people through uh, Peter's words about the reality that Satan was indeed very much lurking among them and lying to them, trying to get them to care more about what people think than about what God thinks, trying to get them to love their own status and their own reputation, their own things, their own selves more than they love people. I think God was making a point, too, of reminding his people of the reality of his hatred for sin and his just judgment of it, especially the sin of hypocrisy. If this sin were left unchecked at this juncture of the story, it's possible the church would have very quickly turned out looking no different than the Pharisees. Hypocrisy threatens our genuine Christian flourishing and our genuine Christian fellowship in many, many ways. Indeed, it seems that Ananias and Sapphira had something of a a warped and a, a defective view of themselves in relation to their fellow Christians. And that is why they felt the need to put on masks. They felt the need to be something they were not rather than embracing their own uniqueness and imperfections. What they were failing to believe and to embrace was that it was it was okay to be, to be real. They didn't need to pretend and they didn't need to lie. Think about it. What if instead of putting on a mask and instead of lying about the money, what if, what if Ananias and Sapphira had just gone to Peter and said something like this to Peter? Peter, we're not, we're not quite there yet, but that's where we would like to be. 
We'd like to have the same trust and generosity as Barnabas, but we find that, they're not, that we're not quite there yet. We've decided that all we can do now is give part of the proceeds, but would you help us to grow, Peter, toward that which we would like to, to become? What if they had done that rather than deceiving and manipulating? But instead, they were looking around and they were comparing, they were contrasting, they were competing. They put their masks on rather than being real, and deceit and death reigned as a result. By their very behavior, they were denying a fundamental truth in the Christian faith, and that is that we should not and cannot, and indeed we need not, try ever to earn or jockey for significance or acceptance or approval here among one another. We already have those from God in Christ, and so we accept one another fully on the same basis as God has accepted us. That is solely on the basis of grace, not behavior, not merit, not success, not status, not reputation, not obedience, but on the basis of grace. Friends, there are not good and bad people in this church. There are not better and worse. There are not greater or lesser. There are no degrees of difference between us. There are only sinners who are saved by grace. Are you one of those? I hope that you are. Church needs to be where the playing field is leveled, where grace reigns and where the acting stops. I hope when you walk into this place, you feel no need to pretend and that the mask can be taken off. Our very unity, I believe, depends on it. But at the same time, I hope we can be a church and a people who never presume upon God's grace, but take him seriously and fear him in a healthy way. After all, that was the result of all this, wasn't it? Look at verse 11. Look at the result of this whole incident. It says, Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. And believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers Multitudes of both men and women. And so nobody dared join them, it says, but it also says many did join them. And so what a church, right? What kind of church is that? Would we be a church like that where people might stand back and wonder what in the world is up with those people? I don't dare go in there, do I? But also having those same people saying there's something different about them, something attractive but certainly I don't go in, certainly I don't dare go in and join them, do I? Our takeaways from this text today should probably be no more and no less than that of the people who witnessed this event. And their response was fear, great fear. That was the result of all this. And friends, fear is an integral part of our worship, isn't it? This word fear, it has much less to do with being scared than it does with having a deep, a very deep sense of 
awe and wonder and astonishment, a very deep sense of reverence and respect in light of all of who God is. And isn't that the very same sort of response Jesus received again and again when he was ministering on this earth? When Jesus raised his hand and calmed the storm, showing his authority over the physical realm, what does the Bible say? It says that the disciples, they were, they were filled with fear, this type of fear. They were, they were scared, yes, but they were astonished and amazed, too. When people saw Jesus heal a paralytic, showing his authority over sickness and disease, what was the response? It says people feared him. When Jesus cast out demons, a legion of demons in one case, without even breaking a sweat, showing his authority over the spiritual realm, how did the people respond? It says the people feared him. When Jesus raised people from the dead, their reaction, understandably so, was fear. Fear. This type of fear, this sort of mixture of awe and wonder and reverence and terror even is indeed the right and proper reaction and response to seeing the worth of Christ and and the power of Christ and the glory of Christ and the judgment of Christ as we got a glimpse of here today. What does it really mean for you and I to fear God? It means that we speak and we act and we think and we live with an ever-present awareness that he is holy and we are not, that he is powerful, that he is just, that he is infinite, that he is wise, and that we are frail and foolish and finite. And yet in Jesus, he loves us anyways. Yes, God is our gracious heavenly father and he sings over us with rapturous delight, but he is also a consuming fire and a just judge. And we must humbly and fearfully live our lives in light of both. Let's pray together.